May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be free from harm. May all beings love life. May all beings awaken. Welcome to another Cuke Audio Podcast. I'm D.C. Pubov, Cuke Audio and Cuke Archives, preserving the legacy of Shunryu Suzuki and those whose paths cross his. And anything else that comes to mind, I pray that you and yours are safe and comfortable, free from economic hardship, and able to get out and do whatever it is you want within the limitations of the universal precept of do as little harm as possible. So today we've got uh, a guest, Ken Nab, K-E-N-K-N-A-B-B. Uh, and, um, oh, I met Ken years ago at Zen Center, but um, I've been uh, familiar with him through the years as a situationist, uh, and I'd seen him at the Anarchist uh, Book Festival. In fact, I got a picture of him on Cuke.com at his table with all his books and pamphlets and stuff at an Anarchist Book Festival, I think, like somewhere, Civic Center, somewhere where they have that, those sorts of things in San Francisco. His uh, website is Bureau of Public Secrets. Well, that's sort of the name of it, the actual, what you write is BOP, B-O-P, secrets.org. Massive website. Um, he's um, uh, known for his um, writing about and preserving the memory and uh, legacy of the poet Kenneth Rexroth. Um, and for his writing about uh, and translating and bringing to light the uh, French situationists, uh, which he preferred over the uh, anarchists. Anyway, he's going to tell you all about all this, and uh, quite interesting. And he's done his share of sessions, to, uh, has a long involvement with the Berkeley Zen Center, and he talks about sessions uh in uh, in the mountains, you know, like, all right, I think his first one like that was, uh, that's the memory I have, uh, but uh, taking him out to Point Reyes National Seashore, taking a group there and doing session. Anyway, very interesting. And, uh, you know, his life in and out of Buddhism and mm, political awareness, very interesting. All right, so that's enough. Uh, he, he's going to say it much better <laughs> than I can. So, uh, listen, after we've had our pause to meditate, uh, we'll give uh, Ken Nab a call, and uh, let's see what he has to say. In this, the last podcast of uh, for, for now, um, I, I plan to do one a week now uh, while I'm on my uh, so-called writing retreat or finishing a book retreat. And I'll put something up anytime I feel like it. So uh, uh, mainly though, I want to concentrate on the book. So i got to pull back from all these other demanding chores. So when you hear the bell, 
if you have such a mind. Hit pause and meditate or whatever for as long as you want. And when you're ready to come back, hit unpause. And we'll be here to hit the bell to end the meditation or whatever and begin our journey with Ken Knapp. Hi. Hi, David. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Good. So uh, right here at first, Ken and I uh, talk about how to record this at Zoom. See, and I've never done a podcast in Zoom, but he wanted us to look at each other. And I've never done that. We could have done it with uh, Messenger, too. Uh, but... I've just been into audio, and I can remember and imagine what people look like, see them as celestial beings. Anyway, so we were talking about how to record it and talking about Zoom, and then he went into this. I have been um, uh, hosting uh, my book group in Zoom for uh, two or three years now, so I kind of have the basics but for most of it, I haven't been recording them because uh, so oh, uh, I yeah. just wanted to make sure, you know, that we had, you know, so if you're also recording it and I think that um, uh, I clicked the thing that says it'll be recorded onto my computer rather than the cloud, which hopefully means that it'll just show up and I won't have to search for it. And uh, hopefully the same thing will happen with you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, do you have a Mac or a PC? I have a PC. Well, there's a program called Search Everything. Uh-huh. That uh, Void Tools. And it is so helpful when you want to find something. It, it Any file name or folder name in your computer, it will find. Uh, or in uh, externals if they're connected. Anyway, all right. Well, that's good. Hmm. Hey, Ken, good to see you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good to see you. Why don't you do whatever your little introductory thing is? I don't. I do that later. Oh, okay. Yeah, it is neat seeing you, I must say. Um, so, uh, what are you up to these days? Well, uh, I've been, uh, you know, I'm in a pretty uh, uh, plush situation here. Um, uh, even during covid uh you know, I uh, actually I'll, I'll I'll go through my life briefly, but I guess yes. we can go backwards. Like, uh, I've been in Berkeley since 1965. Yeah, and I had uh, an extremely uh, cheap rented cottage during most of that time. Mm. Uh, it was a little cottage, uh, rather ramshackle in the back of another house, uh, but it was 35 a month in <laughs> 1966. <laughs> and it just, 
the landlords didn't raise the rent very regularly, you know, like they did raise it, you know, okay, now it's 45 years later and then 50 and so on. But in the year 2000, so I'm, I've still been at that point, I've been here 30, there 35 years. The rent was 125 a month. Wow. And this is a cottage. Now, admittedly, a ramshackle cottage, but, uh, you know, so uh, that was one one way that I did. I kind of got by without having to have a heavy duty work time career. You right. Know? My, so, my. Uh, anyway, so I was able to do uh, a lot of other things. And then eventually uh, uh, the, the landlords died and their kids uh, wanted to sell the properties. And so some new guy bought it and he wanted to get rid of me. Uh, oh. it's like a rent controlled thing in Berkeley, you know, obviously. And, and uh, so uh, I won't go into detail, but uh, he kind of tried to pressure me out, but I got a lawyer and all this thing. And so we finally arranged for him to pay me a lot of money to leave. Very and, good. Uh, and so uh, that was after 48 years in that place. Wow. So, so then where was it i thought okay so i so i got you know like a cushion to yeah uh, but then i thought well berkeley is pretty expensive and hard to find places at this point and i found a great place within a couple weeks uh in berkeley i thought i might have to you know go to the neighboring places to find something cheaper so uh, it's a more normal rent. Uh, you know, I'm paying like eleven fifty a month now instead of three hundred or something. Oh. <laughs> but, but anyway, I have a nice landlady who lives upstairs, and uh, is a landscape architect. So I have a, we have a nice patio garden here that I can have parties in if I want to. So mm. anyway, that that was great. You know, like I'm still in Berkeley. And I had that cushion, you know, from the previous landlord, you know, that helped me, you know, ease into paying higher rent. Yeah. And um, then, so any, anyway, I'm I'm financially in reasonable shape, and that helped out some. Yeah. And I, I'm living in Berkeley, the place I want to be, and uh, it's in a pleasant neighborhood in the Berkeley Hills. Hmm. Um, you know, it's just a fine situation. So then uh, COVID came along, uh, you know, which is a drag, obviously. Uh, but by that time, I was almost retired. And I, the work I was doing was editing work from my home anyway. So, uh, you know, I have a book group, actually more than one. And uh, so that's where I've been putting a lot of my... Uh, uh, energy and fun seeking there, you know, is just, and doing that on Zoom, which I've been doing for the last couple of years means that, you know, people all over the country can join us. It's not yeah. just people in Berkeley like it was before. So um, anyway, that's, that's all very pleasant. And um, uh, so, uh, so anyway, my understanding uh, I, I've listened to one of your podcasts, and it was the whole thing with Liz Horowitz. Yes. Because I know her, and actually, uh, coincidentally, 
um, uh, I was looking at, at uh, Mel Weitzman's autobiography, his memoirs, uh, that will be published next year. Yeah. Uh, so that kind of made me even more interested because I'd been communicating with Liz about, you know, some details about his life and so on. So um, anyway, my under from listening to your thing with Liz there, I gather that it's just pretty freewheeling. You're just having a conversation. And <laughs> That's right. Uh, and then you said in your emails that the uh, it is kind of open-ended, but uh, you're overall view is that you're you're doing suzuki roshi related things like how did people intersect with him so we can talk about that and then in the process i'll talk about a few other things in my life that sort of overlapped um well um it it's broader than that okay um i i do podcasts with a number of people who never met him uh, I I do podcasts with people who've had no relationship uh, to speak of uh, with this lineage, but let's say in your case, uh, you did have some experience with Suzuki Roshi, but I'm interested in everything else. To me, um, it's what's interesting. Well, one thing that's very interesting and essential is that people weren't just meditating and thinking of Zen, you know, that sort of thing. They had lives. They did other interesting things. I'm interested in the other interesting things, and so is everybody else, or some people. Anyway, mm -hmm. so I'm interested in all of it. For one thing, you said you have a couple of book groups. What are they about? Okay, I'd like to put that off because that's sort of more recent and maybe go back to the... Oh, you beginning. want to go back to the first? I go backwards Yeah, and then, then we'll, we'll get there. Yeah, but, uh, um, yeah sure. So um, I was born in uh, 1945 in Louisiana, where my, uh, uh, my parents had gone. It was just at the end of World War II. Yeah. And uh, so it was like an army base, and then my father went to into the army. Yeah. Uh, and... But my mother had me there because she didn't want to try. You know, she was pretty far into the pregnancy. And then after uh, I was born, uh, she went, my my mother went to her home in Minnesota on a, a farm. And I was there for a couple of years. Uh, and then my father came back after the war. And, and then we all moved to his hometown, Springfield, Missouri. Mm. which is a big city of the Ozarks. So uh, I, I was raised there, and I won't go into to details except, uh, you know, it was a fairly pleasant childhood and all that. Uh, but a key thing that happened when I was about uh, 13 or 14 was that I became an atheist. And Springfield is like <laughs> a very Bible Belt kind of area, mm. the Ozarks and so on. And uh, so that was the first time that up till that point, I had been pretty much part of the society and didn't, you know, I went to ch church and <laughs> all these things, you know, and, and assumed, you know, went along with things. But once I had decided that that was stuff was bullshit, 
Uh, that was after reading an essay by Bertrand Russell. Uh, you know, it was almost instant. Like I, I, he had said in in his autobiography, he had, he had said something like, and so at this point I became an agnostic or something like that. And I sort of did a double take and I thought, what? what? Uh, because, you know, being in a place like Springfield, uh, the assumption was that everybody was a Christian or maybe if there were a few Jewish people or something, you know, but it was... That was kind of the thing, and atheism. You thought, know, oh, that must be like those communists in Russia or something. Yeah, you know. And so, but once I just had the concept that a an intelligent person uh, could could say, well, no, I don't believe that stuff. I, I thought, well, why is it that I, you know? And I thought about it for about a day, and the next day, I I, I said. Yeah, I don't believe it. <laughs> Why is it? Yeah, so, that's great. And I kept that quiet for about a year because I thought I was the only one in town. You know, it wasn't at all like these days you would be aware, you know, with internet or uh, people that there were people, you know, who had different beliefs or non-beliefs. But anyway, when I finally came out in high school, it was kind of a shock. And I was like you know, this really black sheep, you know, like everybody. So, uh, <laughs> you know, they're saying, here's this kid who his teachers think he's the brightest guy in town and all this, and they've been praising him all these years. And now he says he doesn't believe in God. <laughs> you know, so, mm -hmm. uh, so anyway, uh, then, um, so I wanted to get out of there and I went to this place called, uh, uh, there was this uh, high school um, advisor who called me into his office one time when I was like in a, a sophomore, and he said, I got this catalog in the mail from Shimer College, and I thought of you. And it's this little great books discussion group kind of college. Huh, yeah. And in, in Illinois, so not too far away. Yeah. And you can go there without having a high school diploma. Oh, they, they have a program, you know, like if, I mean, it was, I was a perfect example, you know, like a bright young kid who's bored in high school or something, you know, not accomplishing anything there. And so there were other, so I, I went there and that was a great breakthrough. So I, I won't go into that detail, except that that was real interesting. It, it introduced me to, to the wider world you know, like people from big cities, from Chicago and New York. And, and the great uh, books. And the great books. Well, I was already doing that. Mm -hmm. I was already reading on my own, but it was it was kind of abstract, you know, reading. About the, but when I met these people, you know, they, they had a more international thing. You know, they had ethnic cuisines, folk musics. Uh, radical politics, which I'd never heard of, <laughs> uh, <laughs> all these kinds of things. You know, I, particularly a, lo a lot of people were from the Chicago area, and this was in the early 60s. It was not yet what we think of as the 60s, but it right. was creeping in there. It was sort of like between the beats and the hips. <laughs> Hippies did not exist yet, but, you know, the seeds were growing. And... Uh, at that time, uh, I had heard of Zen, and I had read 
a book, the book Zen Flesh, Zen Bones. Yeah. Uh, which had come out, and one of my friends in Missouri had showed it to me and said, hey, this is cool. <laughs> this is weird stuff. <laughs> and I read it, and that sounded real interesting, you know. Yeah. Uh, it was very, very different. And, um, uh, but again, it was just something I was reading about. I mean, had no concept of what is this a practice or something. But anyway, I knew it was there. And then I was reading a little bit of the beats and I read a beat anthology, you know, from like 1960 or something. Oh yeah. This is 61 when I'm off to college. And uh, in that, in addition to Ginsburg and Kerouac and so on, they had a letter from Japan by Gary Snyder, you know? And so I thought, well, this is a guy who, seems very hip but he's also doesn't seem like he's you know a junkie or but <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, like i mean he seems like he's a guy that is down to earth you know and he decides he's going to study zen and so he learns japanese and chinese and then goes to japan back at back in the days when it was very hard to do you know that there was not much of a welcoming thing you pretty much had to know japanese and and all that. Yeah. And so, um, and then I read the Dharma Bums by Kerouac about Snyder. So that gave me, I, I thought, wow, this is impressive. I don't know that I would be capable of that, but, but he immediately became one of these figures like, gosh, wow, look what he's doing with his life. So then I go to this college and uh, when I done with the college in, in 1965, I go out to Berkeley where one of my friends had coincidentally gone out the year before and uh, he was in the free speech movement and he was a young poet and uh, he, he at Cal the University at Berkeley, he was uh, taking a course of poetry by Gary Snyder, who had come back after many years in Japan and there was this one year, I guess it was 1964, 65 or something like that, where he was teaching a graduate course at, at Cal. And so, you know, obviously I said, I want to be in Berkeley, you know. And uh, so I, as soon as I was graduated, I came out here. Uh, what year? That was 65. Mm -hmm. Oh, right. You already said that. Yeah. And starting that semester, my friend uh, Sam was going to SF State uh, for also for graduate courses in poetry and so on. And he said, well, one of my courses is going to be with Kenneth Rexroth. And I thought, oh, great, you know, because I had also just uh, discovered him uh, maybe the previous year. I'd read a few essays by him. And I thought, oh, this guy is really, you know, sort of vaguely similar to Snyder, except he's a generation older, uh, you know, maybe different personality. But in both cases, they were very bright, you know, unconventional people, you know. And so I, I went with my friend uh, to Rex Roth said, oh, yeah, you can <laughs> you don't have to, you know, you can audit this, so to speak. And this this class uh, was basically just conversation. I mean, it had no, uh, 
you know, format or anything like there were no grades or anything. And basically, a lot of it was just us asking Rex Roth questions. But he'd also ask us questions, you know, because the counterculture was sort of starting up and he'd say, oh, well, what are you guys doing? Oh, you're going to these rock concerts. Tell me about that and blah, blah, blah. You know, well, Mr. Rex Roth, what do you think about Bob Dylan? And he said, well, he kind of reminds me of this French singer, blah, blah. You know, he was sort of opening up wider horizons. Mm. And uh, we'd say, well, what do you think about psychedelic art? You know, this is when the first rock band posters were coming out and stuff like that. And he said, well, of course, the great problem with psychedelic art is that it's so boring. And we were saying, what? <laughs> we thought it was real exciting, you know. But he's saying, well, it's kind of repetitious and blah. He said, you know, the, the greatest psychedelic artist was blah, blah, blah. You know, and he mentioned some medieval woman who we've never heard of that was like a Catholic saint who painted her visions. So uh, once again, you know, I, I'm just throwing out a few of these things where he's just opening perspectives. To right, us. right. We're very ripe for it. I mean, so, oh, tell me about that, you know, or tell me about this French guy or, or, you know, blah, blah, blah. So that was a big, uh, you know, influence on me. And that was an influence that was subtle and it grew. So that kind of, kind of came up over the next few years. But meanwhile, right around that time, I think maybe early 66 or something, I became aware that there was a Zen center in San Francisco. And I went over there and, you know, to their weekly lectures and stuff like that, or, or other miscellaneous talks. And so I, I, I saw uh, Suzuki Roshi. Uh, I mean, I was never intimately involved, but I, I had one one day sitting with him. I went over there, you know, in the early morning. And so uh, I, I should mention, before I went to Cal, I was in... Uh, sort of in the middle of my Shimer College thing, I was I spent a summer in Chicago, and when I was in Chicago, I was in this bookstore one time, uh, this major store, Crocs and Brentanos, and I was looking in the Buddhism section or whatever, and there was an older guy there, and we started a conversation. He he said, "Well, you know, there's a Zen center right here in Chicago." I said, "No, I didn't know." So he turned me on to this, and there was a regular Zen center there, uh, small, but with a Japanese, you know, Roshi. Uh, yeah, Mat Matsunaga, I think. Is his name. Uh, something like Makioka or uh, Soyu. Uh, I forget his name. But anyway, so I went there. So that was actually my first encounter with formal Zen as opposed to just reading, you know, Alan Watts and D.T. Suzuki and, and sort of, you know, in a kind of abstract way. I That's where I learned how to do Zazen and, you know, the head incense and a few, it was somewhat similar to the San Francisco thing. It was a Soto Zen mm -hmm. uh, practice, only in that case, it was just, it wasn't very big, you know, there were just, you know, a dozen or two people would, would show up, you know, once a week or something. And, 
So, uh, but I got a little taste there. So then when I went to San Francisco, I knew how to do Zazen. Mm. So, uh, and uh, so I did that one day sitting with Suzuki Roshi and various other, you know, like I say, lectures. Like uh, one time Paul Reps was there to give a lecture. For oh, that's wonderful. You know, they, they have, uh, you know, interesting things. And uh, so I was going over there. Uh, like I say, maybe, you know, every week or two for the, I guess, whatever the Saturday or Sunday program was. Saturday. Uh, and uh, I, uh, one time I was over there and I said, well, I'm in Berkeley. And they said, oh, do you know, there's this uh, guy is starting a Zen center in Berkeley. And I said, oh, give me, <laughs> you know, because it was a real pain in the ass, you know, to, to get across the bridge or something it was kind of out of the question you know to to go over there very often let alone real early in the morning so i found out uh that was mel weitzman of course and in it was february 1967 that he had he had found that house and uh you know suzuki roshi had asked him to find a place where they could have a regular center instead of just moving around and he had opened that in february 67 and i was there a week later mm. so uh and at that time uh typically they had only morning sittings they didn't have afternoon ones um and they didn't have sessions or anything like that. Like that, they'd go to San Francisco for any bigger thing. But but uh, anyway, I started going there, and another friend of mine came along to during some of that for some of those early morning things. And uh, uh, often there were just three or four people there. <laughs> You know, there weren't very many, like, I mean, the most I ever saw was maybe seven or eight people. And, uh, but it was the basic practice was just like what we do, just like what you were doing. You know, you would go there and sit Zazen facing the wall. Uh, the The difference was that Mel uh, was was not considered a teacher. He was just, he was our host. But Suzuki Roshi or Katagiri Roshi sensei would come over once a week. And when they were there, uh, like Katagiri would do a sort of one man band thing with being the Kokyo and, <laughs> and, and the Mokugyo and the, uh, the bell all at once, you know, because nobody else knew how to do it. <laughs> I mean, even Mel had not learned that. I think he probably did a, a later, later, but at that time, you know, it was, it was just a place for East Bay people to, you know, meet. And then there would might be a little question and answer or something. But we would go over to San Francisco on Saturdays for actual lectures or any other events. So so I I was quite interested in that. Uh, but uh, other things were going on. Well, one thing that happened was that uh, I was not going to school anymore. And so I got a job as a mailman mm. for six months. And that completely shot the schedule because, of course, I was getting up early and going to my job for that. So so I got out of the habit. For six months, I wasn't going there at all because uh, it was 
there was a constant conflict. And by the time I stopped having accumulated enough money to live for a couple of years in my cheap fashion, uh, I had kind of got out of the rhythm of things. And uh, the counterculture was in full bloom by that, you know, like Haight-Ashbury and all that stuff. So uh, other people were coming out from the Midwest, from Shimer, or from Missouri, or uh, very, uh, many of them were staying at my cottage, <laughs> sort of as a halfway house. So <laughs> a lot of stuff was going on. And this is where the first rock bands were happening, the first light shows, the human being, uh, you know, the Trips Festival kind of things. Mm-hmm. And just... Uh, I mean, you were around there, you know, like, so uh, at that point, I was just sort of caught up in all these things. And I thought one of these things is Zen practice, which I respected. And it was always in the background, but I wasn't, uh, except for those first few weeks when I had been kind of regular, I wasn't really doing it as a regular thing. I would tell people about it and I I would maybe pop by over there occasionally. So that continued to be, uh, I I was sort of not in it, but sort of aware of it as a background thing for the next couple decades, actually. Mm. Uh, Occasionally I would go to BZC and as I would go there a few years later, oh, they fixed a Zendo up, you know, instead of just having a little thing in the living room and, they had that Zendo in the attic and, and so on. And I kind of get into it, but I also had a little bit of qualms about the forms. Um, so I don't want to go into those too much. Like I, I thought yes, well, some do, of them were kind of nice. I sort of like that. But other of other of the forms, it seems like, well, they're just imitating this traditional Japanese stuff, which uh may or may not be of any interest, you know, like, and um, so I wasn't, you know, like a hundred percent, you know, I want to do this thing. But uh, when, you know, if I would have uh, difficulties in my life or times sort of transition modes, I was always aware in the back of my mind, well, I could always pick up that Zazen and stuff again. (laughs) Uh, But I wasn't doing that very much like in the 70s. And, and so on. And meanwhile, uh, just to kind of get some other things uh, that were going on in my life that sort of intersected, but in some extent contradicted, uh, while I was there in, in, Ber- in the Bay Area in the 60s, you know, I was thoroughly in the counterculture, taking LSD and peyote and all these things and uh, <laughs> all the kind of communal sorts of things and mm-hmm. all that. And also, of course, inevitably, the new leftish kind of things, mm-hmm. like the Vietnam War, civil rights, various things like that. Uh, and as you remember, this is a time when we were uh, subject to the draft. Right. So that, that, was, that kind of made it a, more real, <laughs> you know, like this isn't just some abstract thing that we're against this, you know, we may have to. (laughs) So uh, I managed the draft thing by uh, uh, in early 1968, I got a a draft notice to say report for, uh, you know, uh, the exams, you know, that's. Yeah. 
so uh oh <laughs> i hadn't really thought about what i would do but uh in my autobiography i have uh, uh a little description which I, I think is pretty funny i mean it was a funny situation <laughs> i i went there and i i thought you know uh they're not going to take somebody like me. I mean, they'd be crazy too or something. But when I got through the exam, uh, it looked like, hey, this you're you're on the uh, on the road to Vietnam. <laughs> you know, like uh, they weren't paying attention to you know these things that said I was a you know anti-authoritarian or something. And I thought, ooh, I better do something here quick. And so I made up my mind. I was not going to leave there until I would resolve this. Yeah. And so the, the psychologist who had passed me as being okay, I barged into his office and just started screaming at him in a, I didn't have a plan exactly. I was just sort of ad-libbing. Right. The most good uh, sort of credible things. I wasn't like, being like Donald Duck or something, but but I would I was sort of <laughs> seriously saying, "You stupid son of a bitch!" You know, you think I, blah, 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 you know, but just wait till I, I get in there and they give me a gun and tell me to do this and I shoot some officer. Then what are you going to think of you? Yeah, you know, like I had a sort of childish, uh, bratish uh, meltdown impression that i was giving yeah and yet it was very close to the reality because of course if i was in such a situation who knows what i would do but i wanted him to think this guy is we don't know what he's gonna do so after i did that for a while uh he you know uh led me down the hall to some other officer you know and I kind of gave the same routine with them. So th this superior guy brought me into the thing and he says, now, listen, I've seen <laughs> a lot of people in this business and some of them I disagree with, but I could respect their position. But you, <laughs> judging from you, we haven't come very far since the caveman. <laughs> <laughs> Good. And, I, and during all this, I was trying not to smile, you know, and I sort of gripped the desk <laughs> like like I was. And he says, you're not good enough for the army. Now, you probably that's probably just what you want. But let me just <laughs> anyway, uh, he signed some paper that says this guy is not, <laughs> you know, we're not having him and gave me the paper. And I grabbed it and stomped out and stomped down the <laughs> room and turned in the paper wherever I was supposed to do and went out the door, got around the corner and started skipping down the street. <laughs> yeah, good for you. So, so I had avoided that. Yeah. But meanwhile, uh, there's all this new left stuff, which I'm not going to go into, except to say that I was there, you know, like there were anti-war marches and Black Panther things and all this kind of thing. And then uh about a year later in 69, I became an anarchist. Uh, I started getting kind of disillusioned with a lot of the more authoritarian aspects of the new left, especially like the Panthers or uh, some of the SDS people. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I had a friend from Scheimer College who was an anarchist. And I, I thought, maybe this is what he's, you know, I, so I read a bunch of stuff 
I went over to his place and got a sack full of pamphlets and stuff and read it and said, yes, this is it. Yeah, I'm radical like this. I'm also anti-authoritarian. <coughs> you know, this stuff about worshiping Mao or the Viet Cong or something is is also bullshit. And that so so that was kind of a transitional thing where uh, I was becoming a little more independent politically. Before then, I'd just sort of been along for the ride, you know, whatever demonstrations. And so in the process uh, of the next few months uh, of having a little bit of a criticality towards the, the movement, mm -hmm. uh, I just, uh, I heard about May 68 in France, uh, which I had been aware of at the time, but didn't, you know, in America, people didn't know that much about it. I just thought, oh, they're protesting too or something, which was a very understatement. No kidding, kind of right? And, and then I then I, so I read uh, some books and pamphlets about that, and in them it was frequently mentioned there was this little uh, obscure extremist avant-garde group called Situationists. More, it's more specifically the Situationist International. It was like an organization. And uh, I said, whoa, this sounds interesting. And so a few months later, one of my friends and I uh, discover up on Telegraph Avenue at a bookstore uh, this um, a few pamphlets by the situationists. So, of course, we grabbed them, you know, and read them. And he said, whoa, this is kind of like anarchists, but it's more coherent. It's more intelligent. Uh, it's more rigorous, uh, and it includes things like Marxism or surrealism. You know, it sort of also assimilated that. It wasn't just a sort of simple-minded thing against the state or, you know, against authority or something like that. So uh, I, I can't possibly in this uh, sort of format give a whole, thing, uh, you know, explanation of this stuff. But... Uh, the thing is, once my friend and I had gotten into this, then we, uh, then we were really uh, noticing that there were a few other uh, similar people around. Like uh, there was another little group in Berkeley that put out some leaflets, and so we contacted them. And and then there was a, a group that. Well, well wait, so, the other group. What were they? Uh, it was a group called the Council for the Eruption of the Marvelous. It was a little would-be situationist group in Berkeley. Cool. That had discovered the situationists kind of like I had maybe a little bit yeah. earlier on the East Coast, actually. And um, so they were already doing some interesting things, uh, which, uh, again, these things are described in my autobiography, you know, like. What's the name of, of your autobiography? It's called uh, Confessions of a Mild-Mannered Enemy of the State. Ah, very good. Uh, it's in this book called Public Secrets, uh, Collected Skirmishes of Ken Nab, which I put out in the, in the 90s. I've so got that. Yeah. Okay. So if you've got that, the autobiography is in there. It's like, a, you know... 50 or 60 pages or something like that. And it's also on my website. 
all my writings and translations. What's your website? The website is uh, www.bopsecrets.org. And that stands for Bureau of Public Secrets. Yeah. Which is my one-man organization. That's, that's, you know, when I sign a pamphlet or publish something. Um, so um, I started that in, what, 1973. Hmm. So uh, any, anyway, uh, for the next decades, actually since that time, 1970, uh, really uninterrupted, uh, I have been into that scene and uh, uh, participating in it, knowing hundreds and hundreds of people around the world, particularly in France and the United States, but a lot of other countries too. And it's a very tumultuous scene. There were, you know, there were uh, heartbreaking breakups and, hmm. you know, uh, debates and all this kind of thing. But uh, basically, uh, we had, uh, I should say, they had, and I, and I substantially agreed, like, with not only these political positions, but the kind of tactics that they used, which were very untypical tactics uh, for leftist people. Such as? For example, uh, the typical uh, leftist group um, wants to recruit. Uh, even there may be different kinds of groups, but they're trying to convince people to join them. And situationists uh, actually adopted almost the counter thing uh they did feel they were talking about a revolution that would be cultural political economic the whole works that would involve masses of people but they were not talking about something that would be led by somebody like lenin or <laughs> mao or something like this you know that you would you would get some politicians and everybody would vote for them or, mm -hmm. or go along with thing they felt that um that kind of thing had shown its bankruptcy in like the russian revolution or the various other uh things that have come up in the 20, early 20th century and that uh what happened is that in that classic form of a political party a hierarchical party uh the people at the top of the party ended up running things and it could be relatively benign like social democrat you know bureaucrats or something or it could be like the bolsheviks like stalinism mao and, and so on where you know they're sending people to concentration camps and uh you know becoming like a 1984-ish sort of situation so looking back at that uh the situationists similar to anarchists but like i said again with a little more coherent strategy had the idea that the the thing was to awaken people in such a way that they would make their own decisions and uh with the uh a, a sort of implicit faith that in the right circumstances 
people, you know, even though they will make mistakes and, and all that kind of thing, uh, they are the ones who have to be the deciders. I mean, everybody, not, not a select few. You may have a select few people who are inspiring some of these things or who are <laughs> arousing these, but they're not running it. Mm -hmm. And so situationists, for example, I, I'm oversimplifying here a little bit, but uh, a typical thing would be like if somebody said, oh, I agree with you situationist folks, uh, tell me what to do. And I said, fuck you. <laughs> you know, you don't get it. You know, uh, we're not somebody that you can sign up with, you know, and hand out our leaflets or be our, you know, pawns <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, in some mass movement. Uh, you have to, you know, grow up. You have to uh, take, uh, you know, take control of your life, your, your decisions. You have to experiment, uh, you know, try different things, see what works, what doesn't. And so uh, a lot of the, the kind of uh, agitations that I did and some of my friends were, were sort of emulating what the situationists had done would be things that pull the rug out from under somebody mm. uh, without leaving uh, more to pose the right questions rather than to, to present the correct answers. I mean, I, I'm oversimplifying. Obviously, we think there are certain <laughs> correct answers. You, you don't do this and da, da, da. But uh, basically, the thing is, is to arouse people to think for yourself. Try things for yourself. Experiment for yourself. That's, that's the way. you. And the best way I can, it sounds kind of abstract just for me to talk about that, but... Uh, what happened in May 68 was that the situationists in the previous decade had been sort of doing their little obscure things, and most people never heard of them. And many of the people who had heard of them hated them because they thought all oh, these nasty people are always criticizing. And <laughs> da, da, da. But those little things kind of crept around and around. And when May 68 happened, it just suddenly it snowballed, you know, from a little group that was influenced by the situationists. I, I mean, just half a dozen people start something and then there's reactions to that and then it spreads and then the publicity for that comes. And in a period of less than a month, it went from a little tiny group in a couple university areas through a little bit of street fighting, through you know, some violent things through a takeover of buildings. And like I say, within less than a month, France was at a standstill with 11 million people occupying their factories and workplaces. And where did it come from? You know, like everybody said, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, you know. Uh, and it was this was not something by the Communist Party or the Socialists. On the contrary, those people were were vehemently opposed to this. They were scared shitless because it was like undermining, you know, 
those people want to keep control of things, <laughs> even if they want to set up a new system under their own control mm -hmm. or something. The last thing they want is for uh, all this. So I won't go into that except just to say that there that was and the same people who had been saying, oh, these situationists are some weird little eccentric group, you know, they're always quoting Marx or Hegel or some, something or criticizing everything and mm -hmm. nobody gives a shit. You can't understand what they're talking about anyway. And then a month later, you're looking at graffiti all over the walls of Paris that are saying things like, run, comrade, the old world is behind you. Don't liberate me. I'll take care of that. You know, very in-your-face kind of things, but very kind of simple. And people would see that and they say, yes. You know, it's like uh, a sort of collective awakening to, to say, yes, everything is suddenly up in question, like it has not been in my lifetime. And I sort of, you know, I wasn't there. I just read about it. But... Uh, I kind of had a hint of those things from the 60s and stuff like that. Like, yes, there are occasional breakthroughs here where you feel like you're looking, you're getting new perspectives and so on. But uh, it was brief. Uh, and the closest thing that I have experienced that was like that was the Occupy movement. When that happened, uh, I was saying, oh, there's this little thing going on in Wall Street, Occupy Wall Street, and wouldn't that be great if it spread to one or two other cities? And then the next week, it was in 50 other cities. Mm. And then a week later, it was in 500 other cities. Where did this come from? It was kind of like May 68 in that sense. Mm -hmm. now, nobody had dreamed of this thing, including the people that started it. You know, they, th they thought, well, this is probably going to be another one of our failures. <laughs> you know, we're going to do a little thing here and it's going to fizzle out or we'll just get arrested or something. <laughs> you know, and uh, the thing, when you look at the Occupy movement, there was nobody really leading it. Like people in other places, uh, we had the advantage of Internet and stuff like that. So people in other places could see in real time, oh, this is happening in New York and in Chicago or Oakland or wherever. Uh, and so they could kind of, you know, say, well, why don't here in Podunkville, why don't we try something like, like that? And they did, you know, in a lot of like little places in the middle of the most conservative areas, you would see a little occupied podunk, you know, or something. And people kind of uh, woke up, you know, it was like very exciting. And what was the program? Well, the program was everything and nothing. You know, they said, well, what are your demands? And we uh, would say, well, we, we're not doing demands. You know, what we're doing is saying that uh, our lives, you know, our world is, uh, there's something very wrong with it. And uh, if, and we're just, we don't know what to do exactly, but the first thing we're going to do is gather together and discuss. Uh, just like at various previous times, you know, like 
before the Declaration of Independence was made, people gathered together and said, well, what are we going to do here? <laughs> mm. Do we dare do this? When we're, you know, uh, in the French Revolution, the same thing. You know, uh, in many other cases like that, that's kind of the first step. And the first step is like that you don't, you stop depending on the top-down people to tell you what, like the news media or the political leaders or something. You actually everybody gathers and it may be kind of chaotic but the point is that you're 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 play, playing there with your lives not in some kind of silly che guevara sort of you know fantasy or something like this but you're 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 going someplace and you're trying a new thing and if it doesn't work, then somebody else will come to the mic and, and say, well, why don't we try this? And somebody, well, why don't we try, you know, and then how are we going to organize this? And people figure out how to organize things. And they organize by what? By majority rule or by, you know, various uh, forms can take shape. But the point is that the people doing them are the ones that make those forms. And that's something that most political movements don't have. You know, like I say, the mm -hmm. most of the past have been some small core of leaders who offer themselves as alternative governors. You know, elect us instead of those other guys. We'll yeah. do better. And sometimes they do do better, but a lot of times they do better and then it ends up worse mm -hmm. <laughs> because they're more credible and... and uh, you know, so on. So anyway, uh, in, in, um, so that, that was something I was involved in. And wait a minute. Well, what, what does situationist mean? Okay. The, um, are you familiar with Dadaism and surrealism as movements? Yeah, somewhat, you know. Okay. Well, in, those two movements, in their different ways, intended to change the world. Uh, now, why don't you explain briefly what Dadaism and Surrealism are? Well, Dadaism grew up in during World War One as a sort of reaction against the utter idiocy of what was going on, uh, and it was a, a pretty negative thing. You know, right. they would do just completely random kind of stuff and and all, all this. Then surrealism came about a decade later in the early 20s with Andre Breton and some of his friends who had been in the Dada scene, who said, no, we want a more positive vision here, not just a sort of nihilist, you know, uh, complain about everything or something. <laughs> and so they, they, had, uh, they had more of a sense, uh, uh, you know, a program, you might say. Uh, that, but in both cases, those groups intended to change the world. The first surrealist journal was called La Révolution Surrealiste, the Surrealist Revolution. Uh, and what that would consist of might be a bit vague, but it was clear that they intend that to be revolution, mm -hmm. you know, changing the society. And then later on, they sort of, um, you know, um, 
try different political things like Bertone becomes a Trotskyist and some of the others become Stalinists. And, you know, they're trying to figure out how to, to sort of combine their artistic radicality with political radicality. Mm-hmm. And it didn't ha- happen happily, <laughs> you know, like it ended up being farcical or something. But anyway, that was their attempt, you know, in, in earlier times uh, to... Uh, either allies so that we would, you know, uh, these different things. But the end result, when uh, there were some people in uh, France in particular, in the late 40s and early 50s, who, who grew up with this stuff, and they said this stuff failed. And uh, to oversimplify again, uh, Guy Debord, one of the the uh, uh, well, the most well-known situationist, uh, who was a young man at that time, said uh, one reason that they failed is that they tried to preserve art. Uh, they were artists, uh, and um, uh, whereas the the Dadaists had just sort of been purely negative. So uh, <laughs> later on in his book, The Society of the Spectacle, uh, he said, uh, these earlier movements, uh, the problem was that Dadaism wanted to destroy art, or to to go beyond art, without realizing it, uh, realizing in the sense of fulfilling it. They, They just had a negative thing. And then Surrealism wanted to realize art without destroying it, without going beyond it. So he, uh, with those two things, he, he then said the situationists have been developing over the last few years, he's writing in the 60s, uh, the idea that we have to do both. In other words, we want to bring the creativity of art into a broader thing, you know, the whole world, so it doesn't just affect how you do something in a frame, uh, like a, a painting or something like that. Uh, and outside the painting, everything goes on as usual. Uh, you want to bring the, uh, th- there's something interesting in art, uh, which is that it's been the domain of creativity over the centuries, different kinds of schools, different kinds of art. But the idea is that uh, to the extent that there was like a separate artist um, type of person or type of, you know, population or something. Uh, it was a population that had the unusual freedom to be creative, but only within a certain framework. Mm-hmm. You can paint all kinds of weird stuff and all that, but you can't do the same thing with the city hall. You can't do the same thing with the property, blah, blah, blah. You know, as soon as you step out of that limit, and in fact, usually they didn't step out of that, those limits. And so they can, you know, the, the kings and the rulers and the rich people were fine with them being their, this little lackey position there of providing some entertainment of various levels and, and kinds. So the situation are, are saying, we like that creativity, but we we aren't going to buy that anymore that that's okay in itself 
that that's going to do the trick because we've seen what happened in surrealism. They did some interesting paintings and all that. And the paintings ended up in museums and rich people's homes. So what? <laughs> you know, it did not change the world. I mean, all you can do is like, okay, it changed some notions about the world or something in a kind of vague way. And uh, so uh, they said, we don't want to create works of art. We want to create situations. And that was this sort of hypothetical thing that, that meant we want to create stuff going on in the world. Mm. And uh, a situation could be defined as something that goes beyond itself. It's not bound. Uh, it could be, you know, I mean, you could focus on something and say, well, here they had a party. <laughs> they had a little disruption here or something like that. But the ultimate situation would be a real revolution that would be never ending. You know, it would be impinging on private property, on state authority, on, you know, all, all these various things that make up our uh, social order. And uh, it's when, so they could say, okay, that's sort of ultimate goal. But as on the way there, that was also the means uh, that uh, one of the means was to do these creative things in a larger context. And that might, and if you follow the implications of that, you end up uh, having, uh, you end up having to talk about revolution. And what that consists of and saying, why have previous revolutions failed? What, how, how do you envision it in a different way? Mm -hmm. And so on. How do you envision your organization? It, what part does that play? And one of the parts would be, well, maybe our part is not to lead a revolution, but it certainly is to provoke thought, to provoke experiment, and so on, uh, to to keep pulling the rug out from any incipient authority that might <laughs> crop up, uh, this kind of thing. Yeah. So I, th I think you can see, and this is uh, to sort of make a big leap here, that uh, in some regards, the situationists politically were kind of like Zen is religiously. Mm. Uh take it with big grain of salt here. But what I mean is, uh, if you look at some of the Zen stories, the koans, these different things, uh, they are rather untypical of religious movements, which usually are sort of a little more straightforward and, you know, building up, you know, positive statements about, you know, God is this, or you should do this or something. And in, in Zen, it may have an element of that, but it also has elements like, uh, does a dog have food in nature? No. What? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, you know, like, uh, so you have to examine that and see what is the context when that person said that. And the obvious thing without going into further detail is that it, the context was a student is asking this and the master has uh, perceived or at least has the impression that the student is ripe 
for for something if he will only give up his clinging to the you know some buddhist ideal or, or something like that and so it may be a part of that to like slap in the face you know stop it you know <laughs> <laughs> and, uh Again, I'm oversimplifying, and I'm not saying that I understand all these koans or anything like that. But uh, you, I think you can see that Zen people, when confronted with outside people complaining about what they're like, uh, in a way, you also have to think, oh, they think we're just criticizing all the time. Uh, they don't take us seriously because we're making these wise-ass remarks about, you know, like I say, the dog does have voodoo nature, so why do they say it doesn't, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, so, again, vastly different realms and contexts, but it might help you to understand a little bit to think of the situation as, as being somewhat analogous to that like they it, they're hard to pigeonhole and uh you know they are a political group they have political economic perspectives etc cetera, etc cetera. and you know they were not without studying just like zen people <laughs> study the sutras yeah. etc yeah. but uh in in certain specific contexts uh they will do something or say something or attack an issue in a certain way that might be rather unexpected. And you would think, well, what are they? They're being very rude here. Or are they just being negative? Or are they hateful people? Or what's going on? You know, and basically what they're doing is trying to decondition people who may be too susceptible to hero worship or to, you know, following leaders or whatever the case may be. And uh, implicitly under that is a very positive thing. You know, you're, uh, you're trying to get people to, uh, hey, make your own life. Yeah. But it's not so simple to say, make your own life, go out and form a commune or blah, 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 or something. But it, it means like you, you only have this one life. You know, what are you going to do with it? And. Uh, you know, if you're thinking that your life is just, uh, you know, to work a certain amount to have enough money to be able to pay the rent or, <laughs> you know, and you're afraid to do anything lest that, you know, partial security go away or something like that, you know, uh, like, again, some of these uh, graffiti from May 68 are very uh, revelatory. Mm. Uh, one of them uh from around May 20th or something. So this has been going on for a week or two. One of them says, already 10 days of happiness. <laughs> so it's like somebody has, you know, and people look at that and say, yes, I haven't really been happy before <laughs> most of my life. And suddenly, yeah, think about what we've been doing the last week. You know, it's exciting. And I kind of felt like that in a moderate way during the Occupy movement for about a month. That was like the happiest time of my life, mm. uh, like September, October uh, 2011, uh, you know, because uh, with, with all the 
chaotic stuff and some negative things and all that. It was like, I, I felt, and other people spontaneously said, yeah, it says like, I feel like a big burden has been taken off my back. Mm. What? Mm. Well, just what we're doing, what's going on in the world. You know, it's like suddenly we realize that we don't have to do business as usual. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's easy for us to say that now because we are in a business as usual thing. You can't just arbitrarily say, I declare <laughs> we're going to be liberated now. But when it's actually starting to happen, uh, you can get the sense like, oh, yes, that potentiality has been there all the time. Mm. And again, if you go back to Zen, you will will say, well, are what are you gaining from Zen? And sometimes uh, teachers will say, well, you're not gaining anything. You This was already there. Yeah. You just didn't know Definitely, it. definitely. You know, I mean, I mean, you didn't add anything to your person <laughs> right. to make, make it something. Uh, if anything, you took some right. stuff away, right. Right. cluttering things up or something. Right. And then you could say, hey, there's a lot more possibilities than I thought yeah. <laughs> before. Yeah. Now, one thing oh, I man. remember about the uh, May 68 event in France uh, that I heard personally from someone who was there is there was a lot of police violence. Sure. But again, well, that's when I first heard about May 68, I thought, well, that's probably it's it's demonstrations in the street and police are beating people up. So that's kind of like what's happening here <laughs> in the U.S. Yeah. So I thought, oh, yeah, OK. Uh, and it wasn't until I started reading the anarchists and then later the situationists that I realized there was all this other stuff going on that wasn't going on in America yeah. or in other countries yeah. uh, uh, because uh, that led to the factory occupations and occupation of the Sorbonne and uh, all sorts of other things like that. So uh, the police, I mean, that's a little part, but see that that's an example of something that was predictable. Yeah. I mean, that. what else is new? You know, if, if police beating people up was all you needed, uh, we would have had revolutions centuries ago. Yeah. But that, it, that's, you know, that's just a thing that might, under certain circumstances, trigger something, or it might crush something. Right. <laughs> yeah, you know, just more often than not. Um, so, uh, anyway, I want to uh, get away from this uh, political stuff and get back but but uh, this this gives some context because I was involved in this sort of stuff, and so not paying much attention to uh, Zen or, or or even Rexroth or something who was sort of halfway in that 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 thing. Uh, so I um, uh, I eventually. Uh, you know, I continued to put out some pamphlets and leaflets and so on over there. And then in 1981, I came out with this volume. It's Hold a, it a back more. Anthology. Yeah, I have that too. Situationist International Anthology. Anthology. This is actually a revised. I, I put that out in 1981, and then this is an expanded revised version did you, from 2006. Did you translate uh, from French? Yeah, I translate. That's right, from French. Uh, see, once once I discovered the Situationist, 
uh, there wasn't very much in English, and I desperately wanted to find this, and so did all my friends, you know, who were in this, and so we had to learn French, basically, because there, you know, that's where these nitty gritty articles were, and and all yeah. this other stuff. And then I went to France, my first time out of the country in in 1971, and. Uh, you know, I had studied a little, you know, so I could sort of talk to people in French, not very well, uh, but meet some of these people in Paris and other in London a little bit and so on. And then some of them came to the Bay Area to meet us. Uh, uh, and um, little by little over the years, we have more and more connections and we're translating each other's things, you know, a pamphlet or this or that. And so by the time I did this, this anthology, I had been, uh, by that time, my French is pretty good. And plus, I've got French people to help me explain, right. you know, if there's something obscure. Uh, so, uh, and, and I did this and published it. And um, uh, uh, I ended up self-publishing it because publishers said, oh, no, nobody's going to be interested in this stuff. And that was 40 years ago. Mm. And um, uh, it has sold steadily ever since that time. Mm. I mean, I, I, this is the fifth printing. Mm. So uh, anyway, it's, it's very popular. And I ended up doing other um, things. But anyway, so once I had done this, this was kind of like, okay, big achievement. You know, now I can sort of take a break here. I've, 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 this stuff is out there. It can do its work, whatever. And so then uh, that's when I went back to Rexroth thinking, well, there were also some problems with this, you know, and Rexroth would sort of had a little more, more humanistic thing that was kind of half political, radical, but, but also spiritual and uh, so on like that. Now, I, you're familiar with Rexroth, I um, assume so. Yeah, a little tiny bit. Okay. Well, anyway, he was he was like my other big influence besides the Situationists, mm -hmm. and they were somewhat different, but they overlapped in some ways. So, uh, I I ended up writing this uh, little book about him. Came out in uh, nineteen ninety. The relevance of Rex Roth. Yeah. Uh, and that was sort of my effort to uh, say, well, what do I agree with about Rex Roth? And maybe in some cases I agree with him rather than the Situationists, although in other cases vice versa. So that, that was kind of like my accounting with my two big influences. But meanwhile, uh, in 1985, uh, for one reason or another, I thought, you know, I haven't done any Zazen for a while. You know, I kind of been just sort of looking around, what am I going to do next? And so I went back to Berkeley Zen Center, where I hadn't, hadn't been, except, like I say, every few years, I might pop in for a little bit. And I thought, I, I went there, and, um, you know, at the new location, it, they had shifted to a larger thing with several buildings. And um, uh, I thought this is this is excellent uh mel meanwhile has become you know a teacher yeah at that point he had just gotten uh, dharma transmission 
you know, a year or two before. And, um, uh, I mean, I had known him in the, you know, 1967. So anyway, I thought this was fine. So I thought I'm going to go here every day. You know, uh, I've in the past, I haven't been very regular and, you know, I just sort of, uh, so, uh, they had afternoon sittings, so it wasn't, you know, I went there every afternoon for about a year. At one time. Uh, this was uh, 85. No, no, no. What time in the afternoon? Oh, uh, like 540 right, to 640. Right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, a, a period of Zazen followed by the Heart Sutra, basically. Yeah. And then on Saturday, similar to San Francisco, they would have a, a, an expanded program where you could go there and eat breakfast and have a couple things, a little work period, and then have a lecture. And then after the lecture, have tea and cookies. Right. You know, so it kind of made a nice little uh, doable uh, thing that was a little bit Sashin-like. It, it gave you a little, you know, you were getting Oriyoki plus multiple Zazen periods. and Yeah. Uh, so, And then, so uh, I would go to the, that also. And then I started going to their Sashins, the one-day things that they had every month. And I liked that. And uh, then, you know, I, I went to my first Rohatsu in 1986, December. And I liked that. Seven-day session starting December 1st. Not everybody uh, yeah. would know what Rohatsu means. Uh, oh, yeah. It's a, uh, a seven-day session that uh, is... Uh, uh, celebrating supposedly Buddha's Enlightenment Day. <laughs> uh, I mean, who knows when it actually... Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, so, um, and then uh, I got a little OD'd in early uh, 87 and sort of dropped out a little bit. Uh, I... I had been doing some work for them, you know, I, I was a bookkeeper and doing the newsletter and stuff. Uh, anyway, I thought, oh, this is kind of taking over my life. And I, so I stopped uh, for a few months. And but then I thought, well, there's no reason why I can't still do sessions, the long sessions, which is what I really liked. Mm. So I went, I, I merged back in, you know, I said, here I am, you know, and, and uh, so I did another Rohatsu and, you know, the other lot, like the five day session in May or June, whenever it That's is. not Rohatsu. Rohatsu yeah, only right. December 1st. Right. Uh -huh. But that th this is the other big session right. that we did in BBC. Right. I don't know if that's uh, a standard thing or not. And, um, Anyway, I, so I got back into it, and then I decided to go to Tassajara. Mm. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, my friend uh, uh, Alan Sanoki yep. uh, was there around the same time that I'd come. He was there about a year or two before me. I think it started maybe in 83 or something. Uh, had been there for a practice period in spring of 1988. And he came back and... You know, how does this work out? And so, you know, and like the jokes go, you know, like I said, well, gosh, if he could do it, surely I can. Yeah, right. You know, before then, uh, you know, I was still rather inhibited about, intimidated 
about, uh, you know, gosh, it's like every day and you're getting, you know, for all this. Mm -hmm. But I thought, you know, I, I think I could ha do this. You know, I, I, I did the seven day thing. This is just sort of like more of the same probably. And so I went to Tassajara just to kind of check it out. I went to a, like a work period thing in the summer Yeah, and I liked it. And so I signed up for the fall 88, uh, practice period and did that and that was just great you know it's the only one I, I ever did but you know it was like uh wow this is something i've always wanted to do and i was able to do it mm. and uh it was pretty much like i had imagined it you know like it was just sort of pushing the the long session thing a little farther so it becomes sort of like your whole life you know for a few months and so i did that and um Ever since then, so that's like more than 30 years ago, I've been, I, uh, most, I, I do my morning zazen at home. Just, you know, I get up and yeah. do 20 minute zazen or something every day. But uh, uh, I would go to Saturday programs and sessions, especially the longer sessions, where I feel you can. A uh, one-day session is kind of frustrating to me because by the time you get into it, it's all over. Mm -hmm. uh, when you didn't get any sleep the night before, but the longer sessions, you forcibly get in the rhythm, you know, because if you're tired, you just go and you clock out. <laughs> right. You know, you don't have any trouble getting sleep like you might have done the first day or something. And uh, so after three or four days, you know, you're just in the rhythm, you know, and it even. Uh, uh, so a, a little bit more, more like you get in, in, in practice periods or something like that. And so that's what I've been doing, uh, for the last 30 plus years until the COVID kicked in, mm. um, you know, which, uh, now they've started to open it up for in person, but we've been doing things on zoom yeah, right. mostly like so. Every Saturday, I listen to the lecture, you know, and we occasionally have meetings on Zoom and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So, um, anyway, uh, once I was back in into this thing, uh, you know, like after Tassajara or even a little bit before, I had a friend, uh, one of my friends, Sam's poet friends, who was a friend of Gary Snyder's. He had also taken that class back in the 60s. And when Gary Snyder came back from Japan permanently with his Japanese wife, uh, as you know, he uh, they got some land out in the Nevada City area in the Sierra foothills and built a house there. And my friend helped Snyder build the house. Hmm. And they ended up founding the Ring of Bones Endo a few years later in the maybe late seventies or something like that. I think. And they ended up probably, especially Snyder inventing this form called mountains and rivers session, uh, based on Dogen's, uh, mountains and rivers sutra. Uh, and those people are really, you know, uh, wilderness savvy people much more than I am. So they would just go out backpacking, you know, and hike and then trap and then do Zazen. And, uh, so over the years, they kind of developed this form that worked 
that would combine these rather un, un, you know, potentially contradictory uh, things. Um, and uh, so via my friend, uh, his name is Will Staple, uh, I don't know if you uh, know him, uh, he said, oh, well, we're, we're, they have these annual Ring of Bone Mountains and River sessions that last seven days, only they're hiking, you know, in, instead of in a, in a Zendo. And he says, uh, we got an opening here. So I went on one of those in 1993 and was very impressed. Uh, you know, I, I was sort of in their hands because I wasn't that, I mean, I'd gone hiking, but uh you know, they just told me what to do and, you know, what, what equipment to bring and all that. And so I went on two more of those in the 90s and I went back to BZC and I told Mel about this. I said, this is a really great form, genre, you know, and maybe we could do a sort of junior version of it. Uh, and we could go to Point Reyes just for one night. So it's kind of a city slickers version of this, you know, that was accessible to people, even if they were not, you know, mm -hmm. uh, seasoned hikers and, and all that. And so uh, later in the 90s, we did do that a few times. And in 2000, uh, I ended up being appointed the session director for them uh, after, uh, after being a sort of advisor to the previous people who had never done the stuff before. And so uh, that worked out great. That was, I did that for 15 years. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And like I say, I'm not a regular hiker and camper type of person. I mean, I've done it, before, but when, when I think, Oh, I want to, I've got some free time. What do I do? Some of my friends would say, oh, well, let's go back. I mean, for me, I said, no, I want to play tennis or work on my website or something. You know, mm -hmm. it's not my normal thing. But I, but I had done enough of it. And plus being at the Ring of Bone thing so that I, I knew the rhythm and I knew the kind of program and why things worked and why you don't sit Zazen during the afternoon and why you bring this kind of food to cook because blah, 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 you know. Yeah. Uh, so uh, by the time I was in charge in 2000, uh, then I, I really uh, sort of whipped it, it, whipped the schedule into shape, uh, again, with kind of input from my ring of bone experience and, you know, got an exact, you know, like we're getting up at, you know, five o'clock and we're doing you know we're doing x number of zazens and here's how we're doing the serving and here's you know and making all these adjustments that you have to make like we sort of do an orioki type thing but but more simple yeah just with two bowls and it, it doesn't have all the the goo you know that uh but there but it's the same idea you're eating in silence yeah and serving you know bows and stuff like that but just in a little funkier thing you know because yeah. you're cooking you know in, in, in much more primitive circumstances um and so the the uh, ceremonies are are reduced somewhat and made you know so anyway uh i did that uh and we actually at a certain time we're doing two of them every year and we 
we eventually ended up doing three and four day sessions instead of just the two day by popular demand. People wanted, once they've gone to all this trouble to get out there, they want to, you know, stay a little longer. Mm -hmm. And so that worked out great. It was a tremendous responsibility. I mean, it was a lot of work for me because I was organizing everything and I was calling them, you know, and making sure they're on time. The, the, the cooks had the right recipes and somebody was, yeah, you know, there were just yeah. a lot of things you don't have to deal with in a normal session because it's sort of already been done for a hundred years. Right. <laughs> you know, sort of fill in the slots. Whereas in this case, you had to say, well, what happens when you get out to Point Reyes and somebody's missing? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, that doesn't kind of thing doesn't occur at a, a normal session. You just, point somebody else and you don't worry about it you know uh so you've got first aid issues like if somebody hurts themselves if somebody all that so uh anyway uh it was a lot of responsibility but it was very rewarding mm. and i just kept doing that and doing that and doing that and um uh you know, finally, after 15 years of it in 2014, I finally said, I'm stepping down. I mean, I thought I'd still be there on my deathbed if I didn't, <laughs> you know, because uh, I had sort of uh, developed into a thing where I was the natural guy to do it because I was the guy who knew how to do all this stuff. And, you know, I, I had enough time because I didn't have a full time job and blah, blah, blah. So, but anyway, finally I resigned and younger people took over. I, I did a transitional uh, Dharma, Dharma transmission to some younger uh, women, actually in their 40s rather than me in my 60s. And uh, uh, so they they took that over. Yeah. And then since, since 2016, I've been the BCC newsletter editor. Oh, really? And um, again... You know, that's a much simpler thing, but, but uh, you know, it has its headaches. You know, every two months, you've got to spend a week or two, you know, getting the articles and proofreading them and laying them out and mm -hmm. all that, you know, dealing with some of the little po politics that enters into some of, some of these things. Yeah. But it's something for me to do, and I can do that from home. So I've, I've continued to do that. So those those are the two big things. The the real big thing is the mountains and rivers thing. That was that was like a career, yeah, yeah, sort of thing. But I, I'm really glad I did it. You know, I made a lot of good friends that way. Because one one thing that a mountains and rivers session is different than a regular session is that there is some talking. Uh, it's just, and again, I learned that from Ring of Bone. You it wouldn't work to just be silent all the time when you're hiking and you need help. And, you know, so what you, what they do is while you're hiking, it's silent, but when you stop for lunch, then you can chat and then you hike in silence again. When you get at camp and are setting up your tents and all that, you can talk. You're getting there like early afternoon or mid afternoon. Uh, you know, and you're just kind of hanging out low key. You go to the beach or do whatever. And then starting with the afternoon zazen, like at five o'clock or something like that, it's silent. 
and then you're eating dinner in silence, which is served in that ritualistic way. And then after that, there's a short break, and then you hike to the beach, which is right there in silence, and do two zazen periods on the beach, sitting on your sleeping bag with your uh, other thing underneath for the uh, uh, zabutan. And we're in, lined up facing the ocean, maybe 30 or 40 feet back from where the waves are coming in, just on a beach in a line. And we're doing two periods of zazen like that in the evening. It's just beautiful. Uh, and there, what we would do, or what I would do anyway, is that um, instead of following our breath, we followed the waves. Hmm. And you could try to follow your breath, but it seems more natural to follow the ocean's breathing. <laughs> mm. So the ocean is just, you know, that is. so you're just, you're doing that for 40 minutes and then some kinhan and then another 40 minutes. And then you go back and sleep in your tent overnight. And the next morning at five o'clock, you get up and start over, you know. Yeah. Uh, but just in the morning, you, ha you have a, a, a zazen period or two, and then you have breakfast and then you have a study period where normally we read the mountains and rivers session, but sometimes some other texts. Sure. And, and then after that, it talking is okay. Again, so from late morning until sort of late afternoon, you're in a talking mode. And, you know, people make a picnic lunch and go to the beach or go hiking or take a nap or have a dokusan if there's somebody like Mel there. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, uh, but in other words, there's enough, you're doing a session kind of stuff, but there are also periods there where you're sitting with somebody and chatting with somebody. And so you get to know people like you would not know if you were in Rahatsu with somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, uh, so it is, it's a different thing, you know, and in a way that's more difficult because you, <laughs> once you get started talking, you you know, uh, at a session, it's more specific and you know that you're not supposed to <laughs> talk. And, and Right, uh, right. So yeah. anyway, that, that was, uh, uh, th that's some of my interaction there. Uh, I, I'm still uh, uh, very fond of the Berkeley Zen Center and Mel. I, I mentioned that book. Um, some other people had helped Mill to edit this book during his last year or two of life. He died when he was about 92, I think about a year and a half ago. Uh, and when he died, uh, they were pretty much, uh, it's a collection of selections from his lectures, plus a memoir yeah. of his life. And uh, those two things, the memoir is like the first 80 pages or something. And then there's a, you know, a couple hundred pages of lectures. And um, so that was on there. And that's what I mentioned. Like uh, uh, I was doing some sort of last minute, you know, proofing or, you know, suggesting maybe we should leave out this sentence or change this or something. Uh, and now it has gone to the publisher. So it'll be out sometime next year. Counterpoint. Yes. And um, uh, that guy. Uh, uh, Jack. What is his name? Jack Schumacher. Yeah. Is, 
is at that end he's he's the editor i mean he's taking it and then he'll come back and say you know we need to make these changes or something uh but anyway I, I can say that i was very pleased with the book we had some arguments you know about what should be in it or this or that but in general i think it's a very good book it really does give the flavor of mel which is a very distinct flavor that's not like many others in that's right I mean, it's, yeah it's just very i i almost wanted to call it nothing special except somebody else has already used that title but you know it's just a very down-to-earth solid thing and yet very solid you know very in insightful guy but uh you know without uh, many of these pretensions no kidding you know, yeah yeah definitely so um yeah so um uh, uh I see that we've taken up now about an hour and a yeah, half. Yeah, well, let so me say something. Um, I've been getting your emails for since, you know, I was born, uh, or a long time. And one thing I definitely have noticed is the enormous amount of material you have published um, or written about or translated because you're just putting it up all the time. A lot of it... I don't know. I mean, there was a lot about Kenneth Re Kenneth Rexroth. Uh, there was um, a tremendous. The guy you pronounce his name to me he was Guy DeBard, but <laughs> yeah, Guy DeBoer. Guy DeBoer. Uh, number of times I read uh, little things you know you put about him, but there's been a continual flow from you, uh, an enormous amount, and uh, recently. Uh, either you, I guess you just said it in an email. Uh, you your archives went where? To Yale. Yale. Uh, the Beinecke, uh Library of uh, you know rare books and manuscripts. Uh huh. Uh huh. Well, that's wonderful. Did, I'm just curious. Did they buy it? Yes. Oh, good for you. For for a pleasantly extravagant amount oh excellent excellent yeah so it, it was win-win yeah you know, i i got me out of it and my i mean that was like 50 years of stuff you know thousands of you know documents and and all this and now it's all in one place yeah and it's in the same place where many other comparable collections are from different some of these european yeah. folks so if somebody is researching them, they're going to go to Yale anyway. And so my stuff sort of filled in a little gap with, you know, more American stuff. Mm -hmm. But I had a lot of French stuff in there, too. Yeah. So that was that was nice. And um, uh, so uh, where you heard about that was that d during the last I prepared a huge inventory or catalog of all the material so that. People can, first of all, just see what's there uh, and just for bibliographical interest. And then if they're going to uh, Yale or if I, I think they will ultimately be able to order copies of, you know, oh, I want a copy of this leaflet. That sounds interesting. What about your website? But, uh, Didn't your website contain a tremendous amount of what's in the archive it, at Yale? It, it does. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, uh, the archive 
contains thousands of letters, and none of them are yeah. on my website, for example. It contains thousands of pamphlets and journals and stuff in French as well as English and some other languages. Mm -hmm. And most of that is not on my website. My website just includes a very select things of things that I've translated. Mm -hmm. So I've picked like that anthology and I have uh, uh, you know, here's Guy Debord's film scripts that I translated. Oh, neat. And here's this Society of the Spectacle that I translated. Uh, this is a uh, Vietnam friend of mine that I, who I met in Paris. What's it called? Wait a minute. Uh, in the Crossfire. In the Crossfire, uh, Adventures of a Vietnamese Revolutionary. Mm. And he was not the Ho Chi Minh type of revolutionary. <laughs> yeah. Who he detested. Uh, so it's like uh, this was something that my situationist oriented friends led me to in France. And I read this and I said, wow, this is fascinating. And nobody knows about this stuff. This is like Vietnam in the twenties and thirties and forties mm. during World War II. Uh, so translated that. And then my own things, uh, this is my, most of my works in French. Secrets publics. Secret public. Mm -hmm. And hey, how do you pronounce your your last name? I'd say Ken Knab. No, it's Nab. Nab. Yeah, I thought it yeah. probably was, but I like the K N. <laughs> Ken uh -huh. Nab. Well, I think if it was from German, it might be. It's uh, Nab is a, the Dutch version of Kanabe. Um, I, I don't know. So I, I guess some of my ancestors are from uh, Holland. Yeah. I mean, maybe they did pronounce it, but it... it it's just know, Ken Nam. Yeah, yeah. Ken Yeah. Um, hmm. Well, um, this is my favorite type of podcast where you know what to say. And it's been really fascinating. And I've learned, I have learned things. Uh, let me ask you, uh, what do you think about the um, uh, situation with climate change? Uh, I don't know that I have any new thing to say. I mean, that, that you don't already know. I, I think it's uh, scary. I mean, hopefully we can <laughs> weasel our way out of it somewhere, but it's not very promising when leading people all over the world are going in the exact opposite direction. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like the Titanic heading for the... The, the iceberg, and they're saying, no, it's a fake. <laughs> <laughs> that is great. I mean, God, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I can't, I, I, I lean towards optimism compared with some of my friends and so on. I say, oh, you know, I mean, I, 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 I call on things like the Occupy movement, you know, as, as, People are still, you know, there's some potential still there, you know, and people can wake up. But I have to say, you know, like when you go on year after year and you get, you know, these these politicians and other people that are uh, in power now, you know, it's just. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, some of that is going to be irreversible. I mean, 
we may have already passed the point, but we're certainly going to pass it pretty soon if we haven't, yeah. where we can't go back in the other direction because it'll get hotter and the hotter will make it hotter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and the ocean, yeah. and the things will get killed and they won't, they'll go extinct and they won't come back. And then we won't have, uh, you know, the insects, in which case we won't have birds that eat the insects, in which case, yeah, right. you know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, all these things, uh, uh, you know, have potential for, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I mean, in that sense, you know, I try to uh, not personally freak out i mean i'm aware of this stuff i've been aware of it for 50 years i mean rex roth was already already talking about these things back in the 50s oh good for him you know like i mean he was talking about ecology before people knew what it meant mm. and, and and that so i mean i was aware and, and some people like especially since gary snyder and people like that in the 60s uh of those issues but um uh, meanwhile, I mean, my my personal strategy has been like uh, you've seen these various things that I've written and, and so on, and it may seem like a lot, but remember that's for fifty years. Like actually, as writers go, I haven't written that much. You know, I've written one book and a few other pamphlets. Well, you have piled up a bunch more than one book. That, that's true. I, I mean, if I. This, this was up through the 1990s. Public secrets. Uh, so I, I could put out another volume. This is like a 400-page book. And I, if, I, if I wasn't online, I could put a volume two of this. But still, that's, it, it's, it's not as if I'm writing, like churning out stuff all the time. But basically, I pick, I just coast along. And if something attracts my interest like and i think i have something to say about that uh that is not being said because if it's already being said you know what i mean then i then what i can do is sort of just clarify like people are talking about these things and let me see if i can sum up the yeah, gist yeah what people are you know something so when i do see when some event happens uh then i i plunge in and I'm obsessed. Uh, I mean, uh, like uh, when the uh, Iranian uh, revolution happened back in uh, 19, what was it? 77 or something, yeah. 79 or something. You know, I for months I was doing nothing but reading all this, meeting all that. And then I put out one little article that would take up about three pages uh, that was like three months' work. Mm. But I thought this is, you know, this is summing this up uh, helpfully. When the when the Gulf War happened, similar thing. I mean, uh, uh, you know, I spent several months, and then I put out this little four-page thing called The War and the Spectacle in 1992 or whenever it was. And... Uh, when uh, there were a couple things in France that happened, and, and I did an article about them. And then when the Occupy movement happened, I did several things. Like, I was totally immersed in that. Mm. And uh, I wrote what I think are some pretty good analyses of this that are not boring. <laughs> uh, you know, they, they tell, you know, and they were at the time, like when the, 
Occupy Oakland and all these other things were going on with tens of thousands of people. I was there hand, handing out this leaflet, but it was not like you think of the typical political group. Oh, they're just handing out their propaganda every day as a new, blah, blah. you know, it's just like this one little leaflet. Yeah. But that leaflet got viewed more than 50,000 times on my website. Mm. And that's that I know of to say nothing about the fact that it got translated and all that. So uh, those kind of things, like the reactions I get say, okay, I hit hit a nerve here. And people are saying, uh, you, you know, Jules Pfeiffer. Oh, certainly. And, uh, yeah. Uh, so he was, uh, I think he's probably dead now. Uh, but, I would uh, imagine. He was, alive, yeah. he was alive then, and he was on my email list. And so I sent out this thing, and I got an email from him that had uh, the, to the sum total of the email was, thank you, thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm -hmm. You know, so, I mean, he was somebody, you know, from uh, coming from a different scene, you know, but he was like, so any, anyway, I, I do get feedback that says, okay, you've expressed, uh, as the situation has said, our ideas are in everybody's minds. Yeah, that's, that's good. So it's not like we're doing something original, but what we're doing, if anything, is sort of bringing to a focus. Yes the kind of things that people are actually doing. Yeah. yeah. And uh, uh, when when those uh, workers were occupying their factories in France, uh, the situationist leaflets would sometimes say things to the effect. He says, this movement lacks nothing but except the consciousness of what it has already done. In other words, these people had done this thing, which itself was a message. Uh, and they themselves were confused. They wouldn't, they would, the day before, they weren't even thinking about it, but they've done something. And what they have done is already more eloquent and more to the point than most articles about it and, and all that. Uh, but what they they need to do, you know, is to be aware of what they have done. Yeah. In other words, you have implicitly critiqued the state, authority, hierarchy, you know, et cetera. Uh, you know, don't be shy. You know, that's what you've done. You 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 ignored your would be leaders and and you did this. So if you know what you did, then you can do without those people. If you don't know what you've done, then those people can insinuate their way back in and, and sort of take over yeah. what you've done and say, okay, now we've had a great factory occupation, but now it's time to go back to work. We've won a lot of gains thanks to our experience. Blah, blah, blah. So uh, that's what I try to do and what my colleagues or comrades or friends, whatever you want to call them around the world, uh, tried to do in similar situations. And so, um, uh, you know, when, when um, the Trump election happened, this ridiculous thing, you know, I, again, I came out with a thing that's maybe three or four pages long after it was done. And, uh, 
of course, I was sick about the whole thing, but I said, well, let's look at this and see what's, you know, there's also some positive aspects. Uh, my thing with the Trump thing, which I think has been verified, uh, uh, I, I said, actually, this election, I'm talking in 2016, uh, was, uh, may seem like, oh, the Republicans have da da da, but I think this is actually very bad for them. And that may seem kind of odd because now they're in control of this or this or this. But think about the case of the dog chasing the car. What happens when the dog catches the car? <laughs> <laughs> You know, and it's gripping on the 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 bumper of the car or something. <laughs> well, it's complete. You know, and so that's kind of what's happened. Mm -hmm. You know. So anyway, that was one of my little uh, thoughts there that was not original to me. Other people kind of said the same yeah. thing. And then COVID kicked in. Uh, once again, I followed. In that case, I thought, well, this is a mess, but. It's also interesting, like how people are reacting to this online and in, in various ways. And uh, uh, in a way, we've had more global dialogue since that happened than we ever had before. And that's because for a few months, uh, people were almost uh, limited to online debates. What's going on here? What are we going to yeah, do? Yeah. <laughs> You know, what's the authentic thing about this and this and this, you know? And uh, so uh, so I wrote about that. And all of the, all those things are at my website. But that that's uh, but when when I'm not doing something like that, then I'm just coasting like anybody yeah. else. And uh, I, my latest thing in the last few years has been uh, uh, leading this uh, classics book group. Uh, where we've we've been, um, you know, it started out just in in Berkeley, but now it's it's on Zoom. Uh, we started out reading uh, Don Quixote and Montaigne, Rabelais, things like that, Pilgrim's Progress, uh, uh, Gulliver's Travels, and mo moving on on through those things into the 19th century, like uh, Stendhal and Madame Bovary, Baudelaire, Rimbaud, etc. And, What's um, the? How do uh, people find it? Uh, the simplest way, if if people go to my website, which you can look up as if you look up Ken Nab, you'll get my yeah website. Bob Secrets, uh, yeah, or Bureau of Public Secrets. If you go to my website, my email is there. It's like at the bottom of every page. Yeah. Okay. So people can email me and say, "Hey, tell me about this," and I. Uh, it, now that we're on Zoom, I mean, you can even be in other countries, you know, and yeah. we've we've had some people in other countries, but if somebody's interested, and so what we've done, um, uh, I mentioned these various European uh, classics and so on, uh, then this year we've been doing all Asian classics, mm. uh, just like I, I sort of followed through a European, you know, things from the Renaissance to the 20th century and got some things like that I thought that I like a lot that I like to reread and, and can be helpful in, in this. Um, and uh, 
So then I thought, okay, now for the next two or three years, we will do other things. And so this year we started out with the Bhagavad Gita and the uh, the book What Buddha Taught. Oh yeah. Uh, by I forget what the guy's name, but you know the. Oh book. yeah. Uh, and and so both of those had two meetings each. We we meet every other week, so that would take two. And then we had uh, two meetings for the Tao Te Ching, two meetings for Chuangzu. Mm. two meetings for uh, Zen Flesh, Zen Bones, mainly the stories, oh, yeah. and two meetings for Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Mm. Um, and then after we had done that, that's like the first six months or so, then we shifted to more literature, and we, we did four meetings of Chinese poetry, like Tu Fu and Li Po and the... Uh, you know, book of songs and stuff like that. And then just in the last uh, two months, we've been doing Basho. Mm. Uh, we had two meetings of Basho's haikus. And then um, we're now in the middle of two meetings of his uh, little travel book called The Narrow Road to the Interior. Mm. has various other translations. Mm. Yeah. Narrow Road to the yeah. North. Or, um and then when we're done with that, we're going to be doing Women Poets of Japan and China, which have been translated by Rex Roth. Mm. Uh, and then after that, we're going to do an abridged version of The Dream of the Red Chamber, the China's greatest novel. And then next year, we're going to do a lot of ancient Greek stuff, Herodotus and uh, Sappho and, and so on. And then uh, a year after that, we're going to be doing a lot of more folkloric stuff. Wow. Like uh, folk epics like the Kalevala and Yal's Saga and um, ending up with uh, British and American folk songs. Oh, nice, nice, nice. So, uh, and that I haven't gone any farther than that, but that's like uh, a nine-year program yeah. that I sketched out for myself about seven years ago. Yeah. Uh, tentatively. Wow. And uh, we've got a great little group, you know, like, I mean, we had a nice local group that was fun, you know, where we were eating wine and sandwiches at a bookstore and all this. But when we had to stop that, uh, we've actually gotten more people through the Zoom thing. Yeah. Yeah, and, I hear that. And you can from see, I mean, as we're talking here, I mean, I know that you're around the world, but I mean... Uh, I don't have to say, oh, I'm just talking to an image. I, I, you know, we're having a conversation, and we can. I can see when you smile <laughs> if I say something. You know, it's a little different than being on just a, a phone. Yeah, this is the only yeah. podcast I've done with Zoom. Uh -huh. Every other one has well, been more like a phone call. And, yeah. and I know that people are used to that, but it's just, I've, I've gotten used to, like, uh, if if we had been doing the same thing on the phone, it would have seemed a little bit more distant. I would are you there? You know. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Uh, no, no, kind of I can understand. I have a question. Yeah, no. What do you think about yeah. Noam Chomsky? Uh, I I like him. Uh, I I actually uh, I've made a few critiques of him uh, in just in the sense of. Uh, him being a little bit more, shall we say, traditional 
in an academic sense, in the sense that you tell you tell people the truth about things. Yes. You reveal that somebody else's, some politician has been lying or the newspaper didn't report it right or something. So that's all well and good. But you sort of assume that that's the main thing to do. It's a good thing to do. Yeah. So I have no thing with that. But I think one thing that the people like the Situationists had uh, that kind of went beyond that is that, yes, they would do that sometimes. They would assume that, but they would also take into account the sort of Wilhelm Reich kind of things. They would take into account that mere information on its own is not going to solve everything. Right. That people, and and we've seen that in the last few years, especially about Trump, but that, uh, but even with George Bush and all that before, but especially with Trump, you you see, or, or his followers, you see that uh, you can provide information, and if there's something in their gut that goes against that, they're going to ignore it. Uh, I mean, they may cling to him all the more strongly. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, and there will be a limit. I think that you know, if he ends up being, you know. Uh, convicted of of uh, more non-political fraud, like convicted of, of business fraud or something, just crude business as usual criminality. You know, maybe something. Oh like boy, that. that's but, optimistic. You know, people. I, yeah, yeah. I people will. Uh, you know, uh, so uh, Reich had this a sense, uh, maybe a little too much in his psychological sexual sort of thing but he had the sense like look people are conditioned and part of the way they're conditioned is sexually like by sexual repression so that uh you know they're sort of neurotic they they're inhibited they don't dare to do this and they're uh, you know there are things that enter into that that has nothing to do with information so it's not you know, people didn't go for, and Reich was writing under Hitler, you know, and about that, people didn't go for Hitler because Hitler gave them accurate information. No. Uh, because there were other people saying, well, no, that's not true. The Jews didn't do this. or <laughs> so, I, I mean, there were lots of lies in there. Yeah. But Hitler and his, uh, you know, group knew how to play on things so that it's like you you build up a scapegoat you build up some energy but then you direct it in this sort of perverted direction no but it's based on uh you know there there were uh communists and socialists i should say stalinists and socialists in germany at that same time and you would think they had a much more logical uh program to offer people Instead of just saying "kill the Jews" or something, you could say, "Well, what what about uh, you know these economic issues or what this or this or that?" But uh, the socialists and the communists were just giving boring speeches and assuming that Hitler, you know, was just an idiot, you know, an insane person, and nobody's going to believe that kind of stuff. And who was proven right in that, you know, the Nazis were easily victorious over them, you know, and ended up killing or arresting all the leftist people and so on. Mm-hmm. And 
so Reich is saying uh, these uh, traditional leftist uh, sort of speech making and articles and all this kind of thing is not sufficient. You have to look at people's insides, psychological and even physical. And the insides are that people are really screwed up and they're screwed up for good reasons under capitalism and authoritarian regimes or something. They're repressed in various ways. And then uh, sort of intuitively, the people in control have sort of learned that they can keep them going that way by advertising, by constant propaganda, by, uh, you know, and when they do, uh, but but the, the Nazis could take legitimate aspirations of people, like aspirations for community, for cooperation, and turn that against itself. So if you ever watch these films about Nazi rallies, they're really beautiful. You know, it's like really dramatic, and everybody's together. Yeah. And if you were in the middle of that, you would say, wow, this is like a big group orgasm. Yeah. And so if somebody else is saying, oh, but the economy is doing this. Yeah, you know, it's you're not going to know what that is. And if you didn't know, you wouldn't care, you know, because it sounds like, wow, these guys are really bringing the country together. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I say, it's like an organ. Yeah. You know, it's like a, a larger version of what people do when they go to a football game or a soccer game or something and get so carried away. Yeah. Uh, you know, in that case, it's sort of an innocent carried away because it doesn't, the outcome doesn't really matter. But with this political thing, a lot, the Nazis were using a lot of those same things. And so uh, Reich had some sense, you know, uh, you know, that we need to look deeper. Yeah. Here. And I think the situationists who admired Reich in some ways, not his orgone stuff, but, you know, they, they pointed him as an example uh, of somebody that was getting below the surface, which the t traditional political groups were not. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's um, that's uh, uh, really all um, <laughs> oh, quite interesting. Um, I think, um, uh, like, we're a little over two hours now, uh, and um, I'm got a pretty I've got a much better idea of uh, where you're at <laughs> and where you've been well I want to thank I want to thank you for uh, persisting here uh, uh, you know to say this is open-ended and, and do this yeah and, uh, yeah no it's good I like it I like it but you, you've done you've done so much work I mean you, you talk about all the stuff I've done uh, what you've done regarding Suzuki Roshi and related stuff is just utterly astonishing, quantitatively as well as qualitatively. Oh, really? I, I sort of thought, wow, I wish I could do as much as he's doing. <laughs> See, you... No, 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 no. You've done, you've done far more. There's, you know, you may have the impression that I've got a lot of stuff and, and, and maybe I've yeah. put a lot of stuff out there, but, but I mean, I haven't dealt even remotely with the, I mean, you've dealt with probably hundreds of people, maybe more than, more than that, yeah. you know, 
not only with these podcasts, but but in collecting letter, lectures and then having them transcribed and, and having somebody research this and uh, right, you know, right, that's humongous. Yeah, I can't keep you up know, with it. You're at the heart of it. I know other people yeah. are involved, but you've been the guy doing it for you know more than fifty years. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, um, and well, like you said, other people involved. There's there's other people doing as as much as I'm doing work with me. Uh, one person, mainly Peter Ford, uh, but uh -huh. Wendy Piercing has been doing a lot. Uh, and uh, and there's things that aren't really cute archives like Shundo David Hayes. He's been working on uh, Suzuki Roshi lectures a lot, but we share the information back and forth. Uh, he's with a thing called right. Engage Wisdom. That, Charlie Wilson started. He's got a good studio, and he's done a lot uh, with the uh, Shinji Suzuki uh, uh, lecture archive. But anyway, um, uh, yeah. Well, thanks, uh, and uh, uh, keep up the good work. Yeah, very impressive. Okay, all you've done. You, you too. Wonderful. I, I have. I have a. Um one of the things on my site is a list of recommended books, mm -hmm. uh, you know, literature, revolution, what, whatever. And in, in the uh, Buddhism section, uh, I have your uh, cuke biography. Crooked cucumber. And also, yeah. Crooked cucumber. And, and uh, hello, thank you and okay. Or yeah. Well, good for you. Thank you. Uh, you have you know, excellent <laughs> taste. I'm, I salute you. I, I I said about that. I said there's a lot of interesting accounts of people's Zen experiences, but most of them take themselves too seriously. In my <laughs> right. Here is an exception. <laughs> <laughs> and then I. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> this is a, this is a breath of fresh air. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just finished an audiobook for it. Thank you. And okay. It's okay. a. It should appear on Audible and Amazon soon. Uh, Shambhala did it, and they they uh -huh. did uh, they put up uh, Crooked Cucumber last year. Uh, uh -huh. Good. So, yeah, I've I've read I have read aloud uh, one or two of your chapters where you you had your driver's license experience. Yes. <laughs> yes. I thought that was such a. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And people, people invariably crack up. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. People say, "Oh, we'd like you to write something." And uh, I go, "I, I, I actually, I don't like to write things." Uh, when people get hold of me and ask me to do something, yeah, uh, they say, well, "Can you write something um, again, like the driver's license, driver's license uh, chapter from Thank You and Okay?" <laughs> um, <laughs> or if I write some, that, that's hard to re that's that's a hard act. No, to it is. It is. <laughs> that 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 had to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, indeed, indeed. Uh, okay, Ken. Well, any, well, anyway, David, thank you again so much for uh, organizing this, and um, we'll keep in touch about what we're doing with the things, or if the recordings worked out okay, or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, Definitely keep up the good work. It's it's appreciated by thousands of people all over. Really, the world. really well. Yeah. Um, well, I'm I'm glad uh, I can be of uh, some fleeting uh, use. 
Uh. <laughs> well, I think it's more than fleeting. <laughs> well, I mean, it's. I try to think uh, of everything uh, as like writing the little poem on a leaf and putting it in a creek. Well, true, in a sense, <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, maybe thousands of years from now, it will <laughs> not be, you know. But, uh, I mean, you've got an online archive. Just, you know, it, it's, uh, uh, there's a lot of material that can keep on going, even. even yeah, if, yeah. You know, uh, uh, and, um, you know, I've had people talk to me about a university archive. I don't think that would work with me because... There's so much about individuals. I mean, immediately they start talking about uh, lawyers and getting uh, people right. to sign off. And so I never do anything like that. Never. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As long as you can keep your website uh, and make sure that it's n never going to accidentally get deleted. Uh, yeah. Well, I there, know, there's and, copies and of the, it. You're the person to do Yeah, that. it's backed up a lot. You know, and then, then you can, you know, as you get older, you can... Uh, you know, have apprentices or something that are doing similar things that that you would trust to carry on. Um, I'm just, time. anybody can do anything they want. And also, yeah. uh, Zen, uh, somebody in Zen Center, uh, someone rather official, asked about, well, what am I going to do with my archives? I said, well, basically, I put it all online. I mean, there's a lot of stuff I haven't done yet, but I say, you can download it. I ask people, download, yeah. you can download whole websites. Download right. cuke.com and shunyusuzuki.com. Anyway, uh, uh, very good. Um, uh, yeah, everybody download it all uh, because um, I don't think... Uh, it, it, it won't belong to anybody, really. Yeah, we 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 don't for it, for web stuff. You don't need a university. Yeah. you just put it online and make lots of copies. Yeah, yeah. I listen. You know? I have handed out um, um, thousands of floppy disks, CDs, data DVDs, uh, thumb drives, and hard drives with everything. Our, 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 you know, selected uh, portions of the archive for years and years. I haven't done that recently, but I think the last time I did it was five years ago uh, in Germany. Yeah, pe people like like you say you can copy a whole website. Yeah. So what? Yeah. Um, uh, um, we do that. We do that. There's some web. I wish I'd done more of it. Because they disappear, and um, yeah. I've taken off a lot of like interviews, like with Mel or somebody like that, because I know it, yeah. it's going to disappear. Um, and and there's some I haven't, but we took off the whole um, sweeping Zen, which was an enormous archive. And then the guy be became a fundamentalist Christian, and lost interest in it, and. I realized he'd been working for the devil. Ha <laughs> ha. But <laughs> anyway, that's on. Um, we got it off of. Uh, I mean, he said where it went. It went to like archive.com or one of those things. Uh -huh. And uh, Terabess, I don't know if you know about Terabess, but there is a massive Buddhist archive in Hungary, in English and Hungarian. Uh, that. that um, the guy's name is Terabis. He has the whole archive on his family uh, antique furniture 
business website, mm-hmm. and it's massive. And 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 he he studied with uh, Soto Zen in Japan, so and then he'll put whole books on it. Uh, mm-hmm. He put stuff of mine on it. Um, um, I put my books online where they can be read, too. Uh, but anyway, all right, that's enough of all that. This has been a, a great pleasure. And uh, yeah, really, from my end also, and I, I just want to thank you again for arranging this. Yeah, us. yeah. Uh, it's been fun. I've, I've never done anything exactly in this format, Yeah, I had to so. push you a little, uh, yeah. you know. Uh, but I'm glad you did it. it, it well, I'm, I'm glad I got Oh, through. yeah. You knew what to say, man. That was yeah. good. Uh, so take care and keep up the okay. good work. You All right. Yeah. <laughs> Bye-bye. So thank you most kindly, Ken Nab. Um, wow. Wow. Yeah, that was quite a journey. And uh, keep up the good work. And... Um, We'll be seeing you in the future. This has been a Cuke Audio podcast. I'm DC Poopa of Cuke Audio and Cuke Archives, coming to you from Sleepy Sonor with Doggett, Bandita, Feline Cuchita, and dear lovely Katrinka. And we're wishing you and yours and all of us a grand awakening. <laughs>